Thanks for tuning in to the Glossy Podcast. I'm your host, Jill Manoff, and today I sit down with Erin Luo, CEO and founder of the eight-year-old sport bag and accessory brand, Kara. Kara has seen great growth over the years, including through collaborations with Equinox and Athleta. And recently it's expanded its fashion meets function bags into categories, including baby and pet. I wanted to ask Aaron about Kara's ongoing evolution and expansion and to get his take on the state of the direct to consumer business model, which he leveraged out of the gate. Welcome, Aaron. I am so happy to be here, Jill. Thanks for having me on again. I'm so excited to hang out with you this afternoon. You've been busy. I have been. I have been in in a very good way, but um, a lot of happening. A lot's happening both on the business expansion side, um, as you mentioned before, on the modeling of how we're thinking about business or digital business or digital first business, I should say. Um, so yeah, I'm excited to dig in and share all that since uh, since our last conversation. Well, this is a podcast focused on Kara, but I can't not mention that within, was it uh, mid-pandemic or maybe just prior, you have started a second business. We have a serial entrepreneur here. First of all, what is your second business? What opportunities did you see and, and how are you juggling it all? Yeah, no, all, all great, difficult questions. Um, so the, <laughs> the second brand that we started during pandemic, it's called Mercado Famous. And um, the concept or the idea, the spirit behind the brand is to bring, you know, the best of Spain into uh, into the American pantries. Um, you know, I'm Chinese, but, you know, my co-founder and I, we both actually grew up in Spain. And, you know, for the 20 plus years that we live in the U.S., we, you know, always go back to Spain and always bring back charcuterie. Um, and when I say charcuterie, this is the jamón and chorizo and salchichón. And and something that we really struggled to find in the states. Not only we couldn't really find high quality jamón or, or or charcuterie overall, um, but we also felt that you know the overall state of the charcuterie category was a little bit stale um, and ready for quote unquote disruption. Although I hate that word. Um, <laughs> so yeah, so the Mercado Famous brand it's said to really kind of take a stab at. At you know, changing the concept of charcuterie when it comes to especially European charcuterie, like the Spanish charcuterie overall. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, you know, the funny story behind the brand is that you know, not only we felt that you know the product was needed for the market space, um, but really there wasn't any brand um in the charcuterie space doing the DTC model that we always aspire or we know really well. So um, during the pandemic, we started looking to partner with the right farm. It took us about two years to find the right par- the right farms that we could work with. And uh, yeah, the brand was launched last year and it's been um it's been on the uh, on the growth trajectory ever since. So very excited about that brand. I mean, great white space you nailed down there. It's exciting. It's yummy. I've had it. but um, and I also saw, I mean, random, but that it had uh, a presence on a recent like, morning show uh segment and i we had a woman from a mattress it was actually a mattress company um at one of our recent summits and she was talking about she was in pr and she was talking about she got she landed that spot on the segment and she's like 
she's like, I was the star of the, the company for like a month because it just did amazing things for the company. What did some, what does something like that do for a newer brand? Yeah. You know, top of the, uh, it's basically a top of funnel, right? So when I think about television overall um, or radio for that matter, you know, a lot of all that is top of, top of the funnel awareness. So we were fortunate enough to be in the um, Today Show. Uh, like you mentioned before, and, um, you know, which is hosted by Jenna and Hulda, Jenna Bush. Um, and and it was great. It was fantastic to be able to share the product with their, you know, audience and, and their fans. Um, and, and, you know, like I said, I think, and we've had a few other spots like that in the past, both for Kara and also for Mercado Famous. Um, it's, it's pretty straightforward. You see, you know, a boost in trajectory or boost in in audience for maybe a two day and then basically it goes away so you know nevertheless i think it was something that we're really excited about and and very uh humbled you know that they have selected the product to uh to to to, to feature during um during that segment what's interesting about mercado you know and i know you want to dig into cara a lot more detail but what's interesting about mercado is that we actually have um a special you know, vacuum seal technology that actually makes the product to be um, shelf stable. So most of the charcuterie in the market space, you have to refrigerate it or requires refrigeration. Ours is the only one that you can actually keep it on the shelves up to three years without refrigeration. So, which makes a very interesting and versatile product because then you can take it on camping trips, on travel, you know, you can basically carry the product for a very long, extensive time without refrigeration. So that's one thing they feature on the um on, on the show, you know, besides the yumminess of the product. So that was, that was great. I'm sure it's good for education. Cause I know when I tried the product, I I'm no foodie, but I was like, should this be refrigerated? I was so confused. Like, is this okay? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, anyway. no, it's totally okay. And, and that was something that was very important to us to really land on that piece of technology to be able to provide, you know, what we call a skim um, vacuum seal technology to be able to do that. So yeah, it That's was cool. great. So nice. Well, let's jump into Kara because I think that I was first, I first um, became familiar with the brand through a, a bag that you have called the studio bag. And I don't know if that's like that's right. the best seller. Yes. So tell me about the concept going in. These are function meets fashion. Like what existed on the market prior? Yeah. So just a little background, right? Behind Kara in, in the genesis of the brand itself. The brand started around 2013, 2014, and we took about a year to really kind of formalize and conceptualize the product. And, and back then, right, we felt that, you know, the that the market really needed a bag that can complement, you know, the busy lifestyle of the woman that we're trying to service, right? So she goes between office and gym and coffee shop and dates and dinners and so on and so forth. And um, if you live in any metropolitan city, you know, you see her on the street with multiple bags always, right? One for the office and one for the gym and 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 so on and so forth. And we felt that, hey, you know, can we actually produce the bag that can transition with her throughout her day? And so, so Studio Bag was born, like you mentioned before, back in 2014, 2015. And we were one of the first brands that introduced the multi-strap multi system that really kind of allowed the bag to convert between backpack, crossbody, satchel, um, depending on whether you're biking or walking or going to the office, going to the boardroom, you know, wherever you're going. 
because of a Carmen's background, our co-founder Carmen's background, who has worked many, many years before with luxury handbag brands, and my family's background of working with, you know, you know, Italian luxury fashion brands and and for the last 30 years, you know, we kind of knew what it takes to produce a luxury product. Um, and the idea was to say, hey, not only we want to produce a product that's extremely functional, but also that really is a luxury product at more um, reasonable prices, right? We don't like to use the word affordable because I think that's very relative. But, you know, we always use the word internally honest retail prices just because we want to give something that is durable, fashionable, functional, but yet um you know, not of the some of the luxury price tags that you see in the luxury fashion space. Um, so, so yes, that was the genesis behind the brand is, is to really kind of tap into that functional aspect of the brand in a very feminine way, um, in a very honest retail fashion or retail pricing way. So, um, that was the genesis behind the brand. You know, interesting enough, I think a lot of people knew about the brand initially as a sports back brand. Um, because of our partnership originally with the Equinox. And, and that was a fantastic partnership. And we still have a great relationship with the with the franchise, I mean with the brand. Um, but you know, what's interesting is over the last four, five, six years that we've been around, the brand really kind of evolved into a full-blown lifestyle brand, you know, really introducing four additional collections, in, in you know, including travel, pet, and baby. So you know, and, and I know we're going to touch on that, you know, in the in a minute. But yeah, it's been a a very exciting ride um, for the last uh, you know four or five years, despite of of COVID. Really innovative what you're doing in the baby space. Some products I've never seen. I don't have a baby. Tell me, <laughs> but like um different different bags that loop onto the stroller, different bags for the pacifier, like specifically. Tell me about uh yeah, what inspired the baby the baby line. Yeah, the baby line actually it's a perfect example of how the brand has evolved with our customers, right? So, um, you know, when we first started the brand, it was very much designed to cater and target the millennial back then. And the reality is that since we started, you know, servicing her um, and giving her the kind of the products that she wanted to complement her busy lifestyle, she started to have children, right? Um, and, and, you know, the initial, the first baby bag that we, we designed was actually very much out of a request from our customers and saying, Hey, I'm really struggling finding the right baby bag for the market. It's, you know, we can either find really functional, um, for lack of words, Amazon type of baby bags, right. That it's really functional, but really not that durable. It doesn't really look that great. And, um, or we end up buying something that's super high end that really wasn't designed for a baby bag, but it will kind of use it as a baby bag because really there's nothing out there. And, you know, we kind of want to something that's a little bit better quality. So, um, you, you know, we actually ended up working with 500 plus moms and dads because one of the things we found out was that actually the dad in the relationship ends up carrying the bag, you know, just as much as the mom, right? So, you know, we want to give him something that he is proud to wear and, and doesn't feel weird about wearing it and that it's somewhat, you know, unisex. So if you look at our first baby bag, um, it's still one of our, you know, top selling product within the baby collection. Um, it's lightweight. It's made out of nylon and cotton, depending on the style that you're going for. It has some really smart um, and thoughtful pockets, such as 
um, little caddies that you can use to take diapers in and out. Um, the inside it's totally waterproof, and actually there's temperature control pockets. You know, in case you want to put you know milk or 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 um, snacks and so on and so forth. So, um, so that was the kind of a genesis behind the brand. And of course, from there, customers are saying, "What else do you have?" Right? We actually use stroller. We travel a ton. And, and like I said, I love telling the story about our baby bag because the brand itself wasn't introduced or started as a baby bag brand. But because we listen to our customers, because we really want to evolve the brand with our customer um, as they go through different stages of their life, we actually produce products that actually can service her and make her life better. And on that front, in terms of expansion, I mean, people, I'm hearing it. Over and over that brands are expanding or launching something for pets, whether it's fashion <laughs> or accessories. Uh, people are wild about their pets. Is this category also taking off? Yeah, it's 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 actually a very difficult space to be in. Um, it, just because, you know, I think, you know, when you think about pets, there's different sizes, right? So you really got to take that into consideration. Um, we did see a pretty healthy surge um, of customer demands through the pandemic. As you know, there was a lot of adoptions, you know, through the pandemic. I think a lot of people in general were just feeling lonely and wanted to have a pet and so on and so forth. So, um, you know, that was actually a little bit of also the genesis behind the collection is, you know, a lot of our ideas that Carmen uses to to start new products. It's not necessarily because we feel like our product is quote unquote prettier. Um, but we, you know, we start new products or new product design because we feel that there's a need in the market space, especially if it comes from our customer um requests, right? If they voice a need for a new product, we always listen to her. And and so so that was the initial kind of spark behind the the, the the pet collection, but you know it's growing very well. Um, you know we started with one product, which was our initial travel tote for 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 pets, and ever since then we came out with another tote, actually two different variations of totes, and that's definitely an area that we see ourselves continue to grow. Um, but yeah, I mean I think it, this once again just touches on the fact that you know I feel like you know as a brand as we evolve through you know, the different years and 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 different um, kind of situations that happens in her lifestyle, it's very important for us to really kind of take our time to listen to what she needs. And, and again, both baby and pet are perfect examples of that. Nice. Well, here is what she needs as one of your customers. <laughs> I will tell you what, is there, have you guys talked about it or have you um, explored? I'm sure you have um, luggage because I tell you what, I like your bags because they you can they have a little cubby a little compartment for your shoes when i'm traveling yep. i am damaging all my shoes cuz i'm throwing everything in i've got these great heels i get them out they're all crushed they're all disastrous anyway you should do luggage yeah definitely okay. something we've looked into we're looking into and definitely have looked into in the past for the years the truth is this the Hard shell luggage space, so, no, like actual carry-ons and and so on and so forth. It's a pretty saturated space, and you know you have the top players like Remoa, and you you know when you start going down the price kind of range, I mean you got everybody and their brother, right? When when they think about travel brands, there's really a dozen of them out there. So, so, you know, like I said before, we always like to enter a space because we really feel that there's a gap 
and we really feel that you know there's something that we can do better not necessarily because it's prettier you know it's so funny because right. you know over the years we were able to you know work with a lot of retail brands and 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 founders in general we're trying to coach as many founders you know as we can and often you know i think the feedback is well my taste is better or you know or i think we can do it better because you know i have a better um you know view in terms of what the product should be and you know we always kind of coach others and of course cer- certainly take the same feedback ourselves is that you know i think there's so much waste in this world currently that if the concept of starting a new product is because you can do it prettier i think that's probably not a good reason to start a new product so um and luggage like is kind of one of those i do think that to your point there's certainly a certain aspect of the luggage world that needs better improvement or, or improvement overall and that's something we're definitely looking into um but yeah good oh good God. good point joe <laughs> give the people what they want joe just kidding but let's talk about the direct to consumer model because um, you know, it reminds me, you've got this CFDA designer as your creative di- director, and there's so much talk, or there always has been um, in the years past, about direct-to-consumer brands, and it's all marketing. It's all marketing, um, and the design element is the always it's always alluded to that that's missing. They don't have a designer, or it's not about fashion. It's not about design. Uh, tell me about the model. Tell me about the importance of Carmen, the brilliant designer, and, and where that fits in. Yeah, no, extremely important, right? And, and goes back to kind of what we always believed in terms of how to succeed in the DTC world back then. DTC world now it's a lot more omni-channel than than more than ever. Um, so when we started the brand originally, right back in the 2014, 2015, there were a lot of brands that came before us that we learned a ton from. And when you look at the brands back then, what we felt that many of them were started by business folks, right? So these are people who met in business school or come together through consulting background, really kind of studied the market in a very detailed and meaningful way and said, hey, there's a wide space over here. We think we can do a better, cheaper, and be able to acquire customers uh, um, in a very effective way. Now, I don't want to say they never really pay attention to products, which they did, but marketing was much more important to them, right? And bear in mind, these were the early times and early stages of digital marketing, where digital marketing was very cheap. So Facebook, Instagram was a very it was a very effective platform to acquire new customers. Um, so, so, and we said, look, there's a ton to learn from folks, um, that came before us, but what if we flip the cards a little bit and really kind of let the product take a center stage, you know, where we said, let the product be the queen, right? So what that really meant is that we invested in R and D, we invested in design, uh, investing, hiring the right people to actually support that function versus, Hey, let's hire the best digital marketing agency or the digital marketing you know, strategist on 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 the team to to really kind of do the digital marketing in a very effective way. Once again, not to say we didn't do a healthy amount of that, but the focus behind the brand was always to let the designer right really kind of dictate the DNA of the company and really be that let that be the north star. 
and, and like I said, Joe, I think I think that that paid off and and really kind of say, look, regardless of what happened in digital marketing or the iOS 14 updates and so on and so forth, we stay true to our product and our North Star to really let the product be the center stage of the product of, of the brand and allowing our customers to come to us because of the product versus any kind of fancy marketing. So your approach to fundraising, because you did not take the approach to raise, 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 pour it into digital marketing necessarily to the extent of others, growth at all costs. What was your approach? Yeah. So, so, you know, very clearly from the genesis and from the start of the brand, we knew that, you know, fundraising and, and venture capital funding, I think has its time and place for different, depending on the brand. I think if I were starting a technology company uh, and, and it's a viable piece of tech, I feel like this would definitely be something that we'll look into. As a product or fashion brand, we knew that it was going to be a bit of a drug um, and somewhat could be a curse to a certain extent if we took funding too early in our journey. Um, You know, A, because as you know, right, once you go through the burn rate, unless you race again, you are not going to be able to operate in a very healthy way. So we knew that we didn't want to be constrained by that. Um, to be to be honest, we also couldn't really find a venture capital firm that really understood fashion and retail the way we like it to. Hence, we didn't want somebody who would handcuff us, right? Handcuff us and 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 kind of dictate which direction we wanted to go. I remember having a very specific conversation with, you know, actually a friend of mine now, uh, but back then you know, a, a venture capital firm or head of venture capital firm who said, hey, Aaron, look, I give you X dollars. You give me X percentage back. In six months, we're going to go out there and we're going to raise again a double devaluation. Trust me. And I'm like, you're tripping, right? You're crazy because we're not tech, right? If you were tech, I believe it, right? Because you give me X dollars. I go out there and hire six engineers. We got come out with the beta and we prove the concept and we go off fundraise again, prove what potential future cash flow will look like, and then we can actually go out there and raise the evaluation. For a fashion brand, it takes me six to seven months just to actually introduce a new product. Nevertheless, actually take the time to sell it. So how would you convince future investors to actually give you a double evaluation, right? When when you were dealing with a fashion brand like ours. So, so I think a lot of back then, especially a lot of the VC firms that we work with or, or talk to didn't fully understand the model. Hence, we say, you know what? What we're going to do is we're going to self-fund this thing and bootstrap as much and as long as we can. You know, getting external funding is something that we certainly always think about and it's in the books, but we needed to make sure that it comes into at the right time at the right place. So that's the reason why, you know, we initially didn't take any funding. Um, we always knew that, you know, and this is the advice I give to a lot of the early stage funders too, right? Is that, look, what you need to understand is, especially in the early days of your journey, do you want to be an operator to run your brand or do you want to be a fundraiser? Because in the early days, you know, because you don't have a lot of the horsepower you need from the staffing standpoint, you're going to have to spend a lot of time fundraising versus operating your brand. And that's how I felt like, you know, in the early days too. And to a point where I felt like I wasn't running my business anymore. I wasn't running the brand. I was becoming a professional fundraiser. And and I refused, and I refused to do that. I just didn't want to. So, you know, 
on hindsight, and I don't want to say you know I'm the uh, the, the retail messiah out there oh, by any means, <laughs> but looking back and looking to a lot of brands that started at the same time as we did, uh, or even the ones that came after us, right? There's plenty of success stories. I don't think any of them worthy of mentioning as the success story. Um, so, so I think overall, you, you know, I still stick to my theory that VC funding for early stage brands might not be the right way of funding your your company. Um, but there's te- definitely plenty of disaster stories, right, that we've seen, and and not to mention, you know, on on the podcast, but. You know, the truth is a lot of brands that did start at the same time as we did, when we look at their trajectory and we compare ourselves with what they've done, many closed, you know, either closed or scaled down or, or you know, kind of reshuffling themselves, you know, to reinvent themselves a little bit. So, um, so yeah, I think, you know, we're very happy to stick to the, you know, decision that we made for not taking early stage VC funding. And um, I, I ultimately think that's the right way to go, you know, for for early stage brands. Yes. I mean, it's you would think all brand founders would um, be this way, but it's interesting in the way that you talk about your investors and the way you are basically interviewing them and and choosing them slowly and wisely. It reminds me, I mean, we go way back, Aaron, but I, at one point you were talking about um, the importance, or you were asking me about PR companies and the investment yeah. and whether you wanted to take it out of house and, and talking about that, that huge investment of even taking, of taking it out of house. Like it's, it's a big investment and you were very much weighing it and being so thoughtful. Um, would you say like, this is your approach to all partners. You're very hands-on, you study up, you, you make, you're, you you've got the right, the perfect pick, regardless of what the position is. Is that what you would say? Totally. I think, you know, with PR, with any other function that you you bring on board, right? I think the fact that we didn't have a lot of funds in the early stages, and even now, right, we very much run the brand as a startup, even, you know, seven or eight years later, it's that it forces us to be a lot more thoughtful, right? It's it's that, because, you know, look, I have plenty of friends who have raised, right? And it, the, the picture is very clear. You go for an extended period of time on ramen budget. So nothing, nothing to a point where you really have to scale back your operations. And then suddenly, if you're fortunate enough to actually get funding, all of a sudden you get this big chunk of money. The investors want you to use that money as quickly as you can because they want you to actually start producing, right? And start raising the valuation so they can go through the second round of funding or see profitability, you know, either way. So you are very much forced to actually, in a very short period of time, to use the money, whether it's hiring, whether it's getting a new partner, and so on and so forth. You know, for us, we didn't have the luxury. So we really kind of took our time, both on the interviewing in-house uh, employees, but also external partners that we we work with. Um, you know, it's interesting that you mentioned PR, just to kind of use that as a, as a lesson learned for us. You know, PR, for longest time, we actually didn't have an external PR agency. Um, a honestly, because you're not ready. You know, I say that to a lot of you know brands that we coach. Um, is that look, if you don't have your supply chain, if you don't have your inventory management, if you don't have your you know overall SEO, there's so many different things that you have to get it right before you even 
think about PR that you really have to get your operations in order before you think about something like uh, you know public relationships. For example, if you say you for whatever miracle you know miracle you land you know any kind of press piece with a large editorial, even if you get featured, if you don't have enough inventory to sell, you're wasting that opportunity. Right, which happens to I think a lot of different brands that I've seen in the past. Or let's say, you know, if you land a big editorial and they feature you, but then customers go out there and search in Google and don't see anything out of your brand, that doesn't give you any credibility, right? So you're wasting the opportunity. So, you know, PR was actually something that's very tricky for us in the early days. Everybody talks about the importance of PR in fashion, but I think for you know, brands in, in especially early stage brands, if you are not ready, don't do it. You, you know what I mean? So that was the, that was kind of the, the, the approach we took in PR overall. Right on. Well, again, early on, uh, to what extent would you say uh, Facebook, Instagram, is that that's where your marketing budget was going? What was your marketing mix and, and how has that evolved? Yeah. So I would say, you know, look, digital marketing is a drug too. You know, it's it's something that, you know, we we saw how powerful that can be, how addictive it can be, and and I don't like it. I don't like it because you know we actually did an experiment back in 2017, 2018, where for two weeks we actually shut off um, digital marketing and severely impacted back then our revenue. Um, and and from that moment we said no more because you know we knew that look if everything is turning and humming along sure you put one dollar in you get three dollars back or even more um hey i do that every day of the week right but what happened and back then of course we didn't know of all the ios 14 updates and so on and so forth um but what happened when one day that closes or or, or deteriorates right or becomes worse then you're naked, you know, you're super exposed, right? In terms of, you know, what that can bring. So, you know, very, very quickly from that experiment, we said, look, for us at least, you know, and I'm not going to get to the details of the numbers, but we said only X percent of our revenue can come from digital marketing. And, and, and we are very, very strict about that. My digital marketing team knows this. It's actually one key metrics we'll look at and say, you know, Regardless of the ROAS, right? Regardless of the return on that spend, you know, if if it's surpassing X, you know that 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 percent that we're looking for, we gotta scale back. So so you know, we still are on TikTok. We still are on, um, you know, Instagram and 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 Facebook, but it's it's very controlled in terms of how much we want to spend for there. I think when you look at our mix of marketing today, a lot of it goes to influencer. So influencer marketing continues to be a very powerful channel for us in terms of how we um, how we're thinking about missing marketing dollars, um, and we're thinking about in person experiences. You know, not necessarily store. You know, I'm actually very bearish you know not that excited about in store i know i know that's probably going against a lot of the you know kind of what people are saying like oh store is back and in-person yeah. experience is back and and um we haven't seen it yet it, matter of fact a lot of the brands you know emerging brands that we've friends with and talked to 
still struggles very much to justify the profitability behind opening stores, um, opening a store or chain of stores. Um, again, if you're more mature of a business, I think there's ways to justify the existence of stores and and actually to a point where it becomes profitable and drives revenue, you know, in meaningful margins. But I think, you know, until then, I think stores, it's tricky. Um, but in-person experience, I think it's still very, very important, you know, whether it is, you know, influencer gathering or press gathering or pop-ups, pop-ins, those are still very viable kind of channels and platforms that would leverage when it's done really, really well. Yes. Well, speaking of the evolution of DTC, what are your sales channels now? Are you, You're largely on your own site online. You have retail partners, stores coming more. Anyway, what's going on there? Yeah. So, you know, I think, you know, and, and again, this is not news to, to everyone. Omnichannel is definitely still very much um, a thing. I don't think it's coming back with a new concept, right? I mean, it's always been there since the early 2010s. Um, you know, I remember having conversation with the team at Warby and, and I mean, you know, they, they had a very clear vision, just like we did early stage that omnichannel is a thing and it has to be paying attention to. Once again, does that mean you have to open a, a fleet of stores? I don't think that's necessarily the case, you know, but but again, that's that's definitely there. You know, for us right now, I think we are, you know, a little skeptical in terms of where the market's going. So 2023, even 2024, it's very much of a year to observe and evolve in a very caution way. Um, you know, obviously there's this macro trends of, you know, all the doomsday potentials that's coming our way when it comes to macroeconomics. We haven't seen it just yet. Matter of fact, I think our revenue continues to grow. Um, so, so for us, you know, we're being very cautious. I think still a big chunk of our revenue comes from digital. You know, we are forming some very interesting partnerships, which will come very soon. Um, you know, I think, you know, you mentioned before that we had a wonderful partnership in the past with brands like Athleta. And, you know, that was in my opinion, partnership at its best, right? It was a very organic partnership. It happened, um, you know, all of basically us coming together with the leadership team, testing different, you know, collections and see what works, what doesn't. So partnership, I think, is something that would still continues to explore for the different collections that we have, whether it's baby, pet, travel, and, and so on and so forth. But right now, very much we're concentrating on our own digital channels, um, but really kind of approaching the next let's just say 12 months with a lot of caution. Um, I think, like I said, you know, I don't, I'm not a doomsday guy. So I don't think that the world's ending or that, you know, the market's going to crash anytime soon for a lot of different reasons, but we're being very cautious. Have you guys considered or do you have a private label business? Yeah. You mean like working with others for private labels overall? Exactly. You know, we have had many brands that approached us for uh, working with them on, on private label or white label. The reality is that we honestly can't keep up ourselves, right? I think, you know, when I think about other brands that do white label are the ones that, you know, really kind of want to drive more volume and more revenue for the brands overall. I think for us, the main focus right now, it's more, you know, how do we actually keep up the demand um so so we're shining away a little bit from private label for now but yeah i mean you know with the right partner you know i think it, it could be explored but again 
knocking on wood and cross fingers, I think uh, we, we still have a lot of demands to meet. So, you know, we're working on that. Yeah. So I have to ask a couple of times in this conversation, you mentioned um, brands, maybe you're advising and other uh, founders that you rub elbows with it and kind of compare notes. Tell me about uh, what's happening. Is there is there a community that you're you're talking to on a regular basis? Yeah, I don't think we talk to each other enough, to be honest with you, right? I mean, I think that, you know, it's a very small space and, you know, as a founders can be very painful. You know, I think I always say this as a founder and CEO, it's a very lonely journey to a certain extent because you sit on the top, there's a thousand punches throwing at you and you kind of just got to defend yourself as much as you can. Fortunately for me, I have a co-founder I can rely on to, you know, from time to time celebrate things with, but also cry, you know, with at, at the same time. <laughs> Um, but, you know, so there's a small community of friends that we have, um, you know, there's actually Slack panels out there that also exist that we share notes. But, you know, overall, you know, I think because we have been around for a little while, we had the opportunity to coach and help other brands who have reached out to us, um, you know, to a certain extent, you know, even some of them uh, to its extent of asking us to invest and, and so on and so forth. And, you know, we always like to share our best our our best practices and the lessons learned. Um, I think the more we share as a community, we become stronger. Um, and you know, there's a lot of industry events, as you know, that we all participate, where founders come together and 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 have you know certain bonding with each other and share notes. So, it's a wonderful community, and and like I said, we always try to help as much as we can. You know, whenever whenever uh, whenever we're being asked. Yes. Well, you're uh, phoning in today from your shiny new office. Tell us what's happening. Are people, uh, it's in office where it's at for Kara and, and where are you? Why, why was this investment worth it? Yeah. So we're in Chelsea, the neighborhood of Chelsea, Manhattan in New York. Um, you know, the, the team grew over the pandemic. Um, I think, you know, we're fortunate enough to, you know, kind of grow with and, and thrive a little bit through the pandemic for a number of different things we've done. And, you know, we just felt that it was a time to create a space where we really want the space that we can actually create content. Uh, what we did through the pandemic is that we decided to take a lot of the content creation investments in-house. Um, we just felt that, A, it allowed us to be a lot more flexible with our content creation and ultimately made just economic sense, right, to to bring in-house. So, you know, we have a, a pretty significant size uh, studio in, 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 in Chelsea uh, where it's a place where people can come and actually create the content. So, you know, I would say every week, you know, one member of our team is using the space for content creation. So, um yeah, at the end of the day, it just made economic sense for us to uh, to to have a space like that. Yes, well, we're wrapping it up. But thinking forward, I mean, content creation is a challenge in itself. The demand for all of that that is needed. Um, but what else is kind of challenging you right now? Yeah, so how to kill the noise to get the brand um, surface among the rest? I think that's the that's the key. Right for us right now, and content creation is very much, um, you know, one of the key investments that we're making. So, so that's the that's that's probably one of the time one of the areas that I'm spending the most time in. You know, together with Carmen and so on and so forth. Um, you know, hiring it's actually a very interesting space for us right now. You know, I think if you look at the job market, you know, fortunately and unfortunately, 
And I think uh, there's a lot of talent out there just because of the different layoffs you've seen in the different industries, including retail. Um, so it's unfortunate, I think, that we have to go through these kind of cycles um, as an economy. But for us, the good news is that we're able to actually tap into a very solid workforce. So, you know, if you look at kind of my agenda, both for Cara and Mercado Famous for the last, you know, eight to 12 months, a lot of time is not just on hiring, but also retention, right? I think hiring is important, um, but how to retain talent, how to grow them within the company. I think that's a very important part of our job. I never, uh, you know, understood, you know, the, you know, kind of the, the tagline that some funders use of hiring fast and firing fast. I, I just never understood that. It, you know, it's like, why would you hire somebody with the goal of firing them fast if they don't work out? Like it, it's, you know, I think for us is hiring carefully, nurture yeah. them as long as you need to. You, you know what I mean? Like that's the, because, you know, the, the truth is there's so much investment that goes into not only just hiring a person, but onboarding them and knowledge transfer and growing them. So if your concept is hiring somebody very, very quick and firing them after two days if they don't work out, look, that's a terrible business model. <laughs> like don't join a company if the founder is like, we hire fast and fire fast. Like don't ever do that. I, I would never do that myself. They meet so you and they're like, you're hired. <laughs> yeah, you're hired. No, you're fired the next day because you didn't meet you know, the three things that we wanted you to hit. So um, so a lot of my time is spending on that, right? If you think about yeah. challenges that I currently face, that's one of the key areas that how do we carefully select the members of our team and how do we actually grow them over time? Yes. And and big leaps, big next steps for you and or Kara. Are we going to see a company number three? <laughs> no, no. You know, it's it's challenging, Joe. You know, I... I I didn't fully grasp what Steve Jobs was saying, you know, and of course, all of us have read his biography and, and you know, when he was balancing between, you know, his, um, you know, film company versus Apple, right? Um, and, and and now that we're balancing to two fully operating businesses, um, we really kind of understood the challenges as a founder of balancing through the two businesses. And what's required? Delegation is key. That's why hiring is so important, right? Is that how do you actually hire the best of the best into the different roles and functions that you're structuring, um, and let them shine, let them do the work, and 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 allow them to have you know as least of a boundary as possible to be creative and and take chances. So you know our goal in the near future is really kind of scale the two brands. You know, Mercado is very exciting. It's a baby brand. We already have a ton of interest from different partners and retail partners that's, you know, kind of working with us. So TBD and what's coming there. And and Cara, it's all about scale. You know, it's all about how do we actually take it from, from where we are and double the business for the next two years. Um, again, you know, there's a lot of buzz around, you know, different collections that we actually already introduced. So I think you're going to see a lot more cool product coming from our end. Well, exciting. And P.S., when you master delegating, you can teach me. No, <laughs> it's a challenge. I, I, that's my challenge myself. That's oh. that's a challenge for all of us. I think, um, you know, I think we take a lot of pride in, in our world, right? And, and handing off the baby to, to, to different folks that we hire. It's always a challenge. But uh, we will learn together, Jill. 
Right on. Aaron, thank you so much for being here today. This was so fun. Thank you, Joe, for having me. It's always a pleasure. That's all for this episode. Our theme music is by Otis McDonald. If you liked this episode, be sure to share it with someone else you think would. Thanks for listening to the Glossy Podcast.